BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In our times on its annual break, and we'll be back on the 19th of September. Until then, we're offering a podcast each Thursday, chosen from our archive of more than 850 editions, which I hope you'll enjoy. For news of our next season, you can follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. Have a good summer. Hello. In 1937, Pablo Picasso revealed his painting Guernica at the Paris Paris International's exhibition in the Pavilion of Republican Spain. The work took its name from the Basque town, which just a few months earlier had been carpet-bombed and burnt to rubble by Nazi Germany planes supporting Franco's nationalists in the Spanish Civil War. The outcry over that massacre was so great that the nationalists denied responsibility, saying the Basques did it themselves. But eyewitness reports and Picasso's painting ensured this infamous act of terror would be remembered, and around the world Picasso's Guernica has since become one of the most iconic protests against the horrors of war. Women to discuss Picasso's Guernica are Mary Vincent, Professor of Modern European History at the University of Sheffield, Geis van Hensbergen, historian of Spanish art and fellow at the LSE Cañada Blanche Center for Contemporary Spanish Studies, and Dacia Vieto Rose, lecturer in heritage in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Cambridge. Mary Vincent, what divided Spain at that time and brought it into war? The immediate cause of the Spanish Civil War is a military coup which takes place on the 17th and 18th of July 1936, so nearly a year before the bombing of, of, of Guernica. And the reason for the military coup is, reflects the fact that a large section of the right, particularly vested interests like the army, large sections of the church and m- many of the middle and upper classes remain unreconciled to the republic. Um, the republic being left wing. The republic being left wing. The popular front governments elected in February 1936, which is pretty much the signal to elements of the intransigent right to start plotting. Um, there is, though in my opinion, a failure of governance on the part of the Republic as well. By the time you get to 1936, the Republic is extremely fragile. Um, From February, for example, it's governed by a very small number of Republican parties. And even though the Socialists and other major left-wing groups have taken part in the elections, they don't actually participate in government. Why is that? They don't want to or they aren't invited? They don't want to. They, they are they, they are to? invited. Large sections of the Socialist Party, particularly the main union, uh, which provides the, 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 the popular support for the Republic, um, are disenchanted with a liberal republicanism. Um, they want more radical solutions and they feel that being part of a bourgeois government would, would, would compromise their position. So the Socialist Party is split. There are significant reformist elements that do want to take part in the... to do it part in the government, but the actual trade union movement doesn't. Didn't the Socialists see the consequences of what they did? The possible consequences. Some of them certainly did. So the parliamentary leaders like Indalecio Prieto, they definitely see the dangers and the consequences of this. But the leader of the trade union, Largo Caballero, is 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 again much more intransigent. So you from from February thirty six, the Republic has a weak government, which finds it very difficult to institute to institute it, its political will, and the right is plotting openly. And Franco emerges as the man who leads the nationalist forces. How did he emerge and why did he emerge? Franco emerges through a combination of great ambition and and quite a lot of good fortune. Um, His most significant 
power ploy, if you like, is the fact that he is commander of the Army of Africa, who are the only battle-hardened troops in the Spanish army. So he leads these these experienced colonial troops um, who have been stationed in Morocco um, and then fight their way up from, from the Flies south of Spain. Gibraltar and the they are airlifted across the Straits of Gibraltar by Nazi and Italian planes. Um, so from the very beginning, the national, the Francoist war effort is dependent on, for, on, on foreign intervention. But Franco's position, the Army of Africa, gives him an advantage and he has the extraordinary stroke good fortune in that two of his main rivals die in plane crashes um, Suspect plane crashes or proper plane crashes? It probably proper plane crashes, but it's there is, as you can imagine, speculation and conspiracy <laughs> theories run rife. It was extremely convenient. Was he a good? Was he a good general? Was he a good commander? Well, no. he won, but was he good? No, I mean, in military terms, I, certainly so far as I understand it, what he did have was a sense of political possibility, an ambition, a desire to get the. To, to the top and a complete ruthlessness in eliminating opposition um, both in terms of the Republican population in conquered territory and in terms of potential rivals So that's begun Sorry, you, you finished Sorry. So that's begun, Geis, Geis van Hensbergen Where was Picasso when war broke out and what was his status as an artist? Uh, Picasso was uh, living in Paris and he had already been in Paris for, gosh, more than 30 years. And uh, his relationship to Spain had been distant, uh, but he had gone there for the last time, and it would be the last time ever, in the summer of 1934 to go to see, apparently, to see the bullfights. While there, he actually encountered uh, the politics right up in front of him. He was uh, invited, and it could only be possible in Spain, but he was invited to a fascist gastronomic society called Gour in San Sebastián. He uh, it was the last time, in a sense, that the left and the right and in the intellectuals could be sitting in the same room. After the meeting, he goes out for dinner with his, with his wife and his child, Paolo, and who comes turning up to him but the head of the Falange, José Antonio Primo de Rivera, who, who apparently tells him that they are going to give him an exhibition. And, uh, you know, previously in the, in the Republic, it would be very, very uh, difficult uh, to secure the exhibition, but they would give him a, a, a military guard for the exhibition. And Picasso then, uh, in the end, he moves on, uh, shocked because Primitive Rivera says he, the last time he met someone with eyes like his was Mussolini. And Picasso goes back, flees back to Paris, and in a sense watches from the bylines. Was it known at the time that Picasso was a communist? No, and he still wasn't a communist. That would only happen in 1944. Right, but he went to Spain briefly and got and went, and he, he didn't like what he saw except for the bullfight, one presumes. Yeah, he didn't like what he saw, and equally the way that it had been twisted, the kind of fake news element where Jiménez Caballero, the speechwriter for Franco, had actually said that they had won Picasso for the right wing. And he felt embarrassed by that. And more and more, uh, as the Civil War starts, of course, the exiles come to Paris and he has a Spanish community. How, how political was Picasso? It sounds a bit naive if he goes up to Spain to watch a bullfight, that's one thing, then goes to a fascist dinner party, that's another thing. Was he politically naive or did he not know what he was doing? Well, that's the same, isn't it, really? Well, he did know what he was doing. Um, I mean, Kahnweiler, his dealer, said he was the most apolitical man he'd ever met. I'm not sure. I think what's happened now recently with a lot of uh, Spanish 
historians working on it, that they've discovered Picasso very, very quickly during the Spanish Civil War becomes highly political. In fact, so much so that in September 1936, he is made the honorary director of the Prado Museum, which means, in a sense, they're using his status now as the world's most famous artist to bolster the Republican, uh, the pro- Republican kind of propaganda side of the war. And yes, yeah, sorry. And as I understand it, he starts lampooning Franco. When does he do that and how does he do it? Well, uh, at the beginning of January uh, 1937, a group of Republicans come up to him from the government. Uh, there's the big exhibition again to come in 37, And they say to, to Pablo, please, will you, will you help with a huge kind of commission, a large painting? And apparently he's supposed to have said, well, you know, I don't do politics. And they said, well, you've already accepted your position as the director of the Prado. Uh, That's a clear statement of support. And we really need you. I mean, even people have said that a painting from you is the equivalent of an army regiment. And he thinks about it. He accepts the the commission, but he still doesn't know what he's going to do. But before that, he'd made some caricatures of <coughs> Franco. That's what I'm trying to get at. What were yeah. they? And can well, you tell was, us briefly about that? was actually about the... on that day. On um, that day, right. After, after the meeting, he sits down and in, I mean, at lightning speed, he does a series of caricatures, nine, uh, a strip of nine things, The Dream and Lie of Franco, in which Franco appears as this giant phallus striding across the Straits of Gibraltar on a tightrope and then desecrating, uh, first of all, the, the, the classical sculpture. Then he's a holy woman who's praying not to the host but to the five peseta piece, the duro. And he becomes this kind of pig-like figure and disemboweling animals. And it's absolutely savage satire. So we know where Picasso stands then. Absolutely. So that's OK. Dacia Viejo Rose, when... Why did the nationalists target Guernica in the Basque country? Tell us a bit about Guernica. Right, so that's the million-dollar question in a sense. And in the same way as in Picasso's painting, you have a woman shedding light on the scene. Historians have been trying to shed light on the scene of what happened in Guernica ever since the bombing. There are lots of theories. I think the truth probably lies at a combination of all of these theories. So if you look at the Italian military diaries at the time, because of course there were Italian planes involved in the bombing, the reasons they give is that it's strategic, that there are troops, the Basque Republican troops, are retreating towards Bilbao, Guernica is on the way, there's this bridge called the Bridge of Renteria, which they need to bomb to stop the troops coming over. And if you look at the bombings of the Italian planes, they bombed just before the bridge, they bombed just after the bridge, but one of the reasons that this theory collapses slightly is that they actually missed the bridge. This isn't a large bridge, and they missed it. So either they were slightly incompetent, or that wasn't the aim. So in every theory, there are questions. With the involvement of the Condor Legion on the part of the German Air Force, you have in Colonel uh, Richthofen's diary on the night after the bombing of Guernica, he writes in his diary, Guernica, seat of Basque civil liberties, home of the symbolic tree and meeting house, was bombed and annihilated today. And yet, the tree and the meeting house were not bombed. So, the, the real force behind it, I'm suggesting, if I'm wrong, you'll tell me and we can get on with the programme. The real force behind it was the German and the German Air Force. They, they masterminded the back by Goering, who said he wanted that place um, burnt to the ground, blitzkrieged, 
he said, it is said, he said, as a, present, a birthday present to Hitler, and as a promise of the future, this is what the Luftwaffe could do, this is what they were going to do if they were let loose. Now, they, it said also that they targeted Guernica, this small town, but because it was the right size, it was totally undefended. They did it at 4.30 on a market day when it would be very, very full, men, women and children, animals and that sort of thing. They started bombing at 4, then hit them at 4.30. So... Do you lend credence to that? And then after they bombed it and set up a firestorm in the middle, they went back with machine guns and killed anybody who's running for the hills. Is all that accurate? Yes. Right. All of that is accurate. Okay. Uh, can you tell us uh, what you thought was behind that? Was I correct in saying it was a demonstration of German firepower from the air? Yeah, so the larger theory behind it is that the Germans were using Spain in particular as a training ground and to experiment what later would become their strategy for aerial bombing of civilian towns and unprotected towns in the Second World War. So this was a testing ground, and they were practicing and seeing also how the destruction of a town like that that was undefended, full of civilians, symbolic, would have the impact that would have on the morale of the Basques and of the enemy in continuing to fight or give up. I've described a little of what happened to the town. Can you take it for what happened to the fabric of the town after that bombing? So as you mentioned, it was a Monday. It was a market day. So the normal population of Guernica was about 5,000, but that would have been inflated that day because of the market, because of all the troops that were around. There was a military hospital there. So at 4.30, and there are some different ideas about whether the bombing actually started at 3, 3.30, 4, 4.30, but the documents seem to indicate, as you said, that it was at 4.30. The church bells of the Church of Santa Maria begin to ring, as they always did, to warn the population that the planes were coming. So 4.30, the church bells begin to ring. People start to run for the shelters that had been done after the March 31st bombing of Durango, a Basque town nearby. So they had started to build shelters. They start to run for the shelters. The first um, planes are the Italian planes, which are bombing along the bridge and the railroad. And then they, the German planes come in and they're big breakers. So they start breaking down the buildings. And then the next wave are the incendiary bombs that come in and set everything on fire. And as people are, of course, running to the shelters, the shelters begin collapsing on them. And then the machine gunning starts. That is, people is running, are running up into the mountains. The machine gunning starts. And the, uh, the anecdotes of those that were there, who were children, of course, who were 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, they talk about seeing the faces of the pilots in the planes as they're machine gunning them and of running to hide in the monte, in the hills just around Guernica, under trees and in, in sort of little caves and sheltering there. And the Luftwaffe came in very systematically. They bombed the fire engine station so they couldn't get there. They bombed the water so they couldn't get water to the fires. And they bombed the shelters so the people in the shelters had gone there to hide were actually crushed to death. So it was a, it was a very uh, total uh, blitzkrieg. Mary Vincent, how did this story of this bombing reach the outside world? How and when? It reached the outside world relatively quickly. Um, um, unlike the bombing of Durango, which, as Desi has said, that took place a few days beforehand. A small town nearby. A small nearby. town nearby, I'll very have similar. To do, I'm afraid, yeah. yes. A, a, a very similar case. But, but Guernica is... It's quite nibble bow because of the bombing of Durango. People are expecting there to be something else. As soon as there is news and any people see the planes and they see the smoke, journalists in particular set off to reach the town. There, there are the witnesses, apart from the townsfolk, are not 
in the town at the time of the bombing, but they get there very quickly. Uh, two very significant um, uh, witnesses are George Steer, who's the, co- the South African um, correspondent for, for the London for the Times of London. Um, he arrives uh, very quickly indeed, and a priest, a man called Alberto. Or, or India, um also goes in to, uh, and they are both going. George uh, Steer is going both to report, to investigate, and he's going to 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 actually find out what's happening. Steer's report is fantastically influential. Yes, very detailed. Interviews people. There are photographs accompanying. Yes. Rings around the world. Uh, it's a great piece, a massive piece of war yes. reporting. Can you just give us a little more? He went to the New York Times straight away after the London Times and so on. Yes, I, I, Steer broke the story and, of course, the Times re- repeats it immediately, but the, um, the, the initial news report is as was common at the, the time of the day because it, it's print columns, it's very factual, it's very short. The, Steer's very influential reporting comes out later in, in the weekly press and then, indeed, in the book he writes, the, the, the Tree of Guernica. It's then taken up. It's taken up first in the French press and then it's taken up in the North American press. Just to clarify this Tree of Guernica for the listeners... Yes. Basque towns had had symbolic trees from the Middle Ages. The one in Gernt was a great oak tree where um, laws and things were passed and it was not bombed and it was very important. Guys, um, let's try to keep the parallel at the moment. Um, How... Can you just let's try to describe the image that Picasso painted when asked to paint an image of Guernica, which he did in about seven weeks? Can you describe the image? We have it's seven seven meters tall and three meters wide. We have these small <laughs> representations in front of us, but away you go. Well, um, first of all, it's an extraordinary achievement to fill a canvas of seven metres by three and a half, uh, seven metres long, mural scale. It's uh, astonishingly powerful and and what what we see on the right hand side is a house which is in flames three women one screaming coming out of the top window holding a torch into the middle a woman with her hands up and a woman who is on the bottom of the painting pushing in towards the central scene and the central scene is the actual the real horrific scene which is a horse which has got a lance penetrating through from back to front uh, down below it, uh, there's a soldier or a figure who's, which actually, in previous versions, was a Picasso self-portrait, but of a soldier with his head chopped off and arm lopped off as well. And on the left-hand side, possibly the most terrifying for in the terms of our kind of human sympathies, there's a bull which looks impassively onto the whole scene and below there's a woman holding a child and we as viewers already know that that child is dead and the mother is screaming up to the skies with this kind of terrible dagger-like tongue uh, screaming for intervention and, and hoping that her child is still alive and it's this all done in black and white and all the shades between grisaille and the, all that is amazing, isn't it? But the, we need to say that, that's obvious. Um, but the bull is both implacable Spain and imperishable Spain, isn't it? It's two things. It's a Spain that lasts forever, and it's also terrible, wreaking terrible destruction. Yeah. And it's a big feature, the bull, though. It's a big feature, but I think it's quietness, it's stillness. I mean, Picasso never wanted us to, to, to kind of close down the image and think of it in terms of... of uh, you know that this represents Spain or this represents uh, uh, Franco or the violence. I think it's also actually a stand-in for the artist himself. The bull, which of course is a symbol for Catalans, particularly uh, of the symbol of Saint Luke, which was in fact the opposition art school to to Picasso. But the artist standing in there, looking in on the 
seen below. So it's a kind of... Picasso always brings himself into paintings. Briefly, can, am I right? When this was shown first to the people of Guernica, they didn't like it. They wanted a sort of photorealistic painting of their city that was raised to the ground, 90-odd percent of property gone. They didn't really appreciate, or want appreciate, it's the wrong word. They didn't like what they saw. Well, some, some of the... Uh, the One politi- or two did, but yeah, most of them didn't. Yeah, some of the politicians found it uh, kind of actually totally bizarre. Uh, fingers, cartoon-like, stubby fingers, uh, the kind of simplicity in a sense, but also the the total confusion. It is a chaotic image. It's deliberately chaotic because that's what it's trying to depict, is the horror of Blitzkrieg, the horror of uh, every kind of standard ritual in Spanish life is turned on its tail. I mean, there's no horse in a bullfight that's ever been stabbed through, but here in the painting... You can write the narrative as you want, and Picasso has twisted everything around and, and made this very passionate statement. But just to nail that little one, there was quite a lot of people in Guernica said, you know, what has this got to do with what happened to us? Not making a big point, but it's a point worth making, because later the people of Guernica became extraordinarily proud of it and they built it into the town and built it into the, their lives. Last year... Um, in those, in the months after the bombing, when it got round, especially Steers' uh, journalism, uh, it was a brilliant piece of journalism, the nationalists got the wind up. In fact, they got the wind up as soon as uh, it appeared in the Times, and they tr- and they started to tell a series of very wounding, total lies, which still persist. I'm told today. Now, can you tell us what those lies were and how they got away with them? Yeah. So the cover-up on the part of the nationalist side began immediately after the bombing. And you have uh, Franco in particular first denying any involvement of the Air Force in it and then claiming that any in a, in a telegram that he writes to Spiegel, in the, the German head of the command of the military, writing saying, well, if our planes were involved, it was just to destroy the strategic points of the arms factory, which again, was not destroyed. Um, But actually, the reason for this was strategic. So don't bring in any kind of um, observers to see what happened. So it's trying to cover up. And then he said that the Basques themselves set fire to the town. And it was that narrative that became the predominant one on the part of the nationalists, and also the one that hurt the Basque even more. So this is a double injury to them. First, they destroy their most symbolic and sacred site, and then they claim that they themselves, the Basques, set fire on it and burned it to the ground. How did they get away with it? Partly because um, the nationalist troops come in three days after the bombing, so very quickly after the bombing. German uh, military is brought in to cleanse the area of any evidence of their participation. They can't in cleanse it. much. The place has been raised to the ground. So what's the cleansing? So the sh- what's left of the bombs and of the writing on the bombs oh, that see. mark where the bombs were made. And what the nationalist troops do is they set up petrol tanks in various places as evidence that the Basques use these petrol tanks to set fire to the town. So there's this placement of evidence and this false news and post-truthness that comes in immediately after the bombing. Is there any any way of gauging a percentage of how many people in Guernica believed this uh, and how many went along with it because they thought they'd be shot if they didn't? I mean, what was the reaction? Oh, goodness, in Guernica itself, nobody believed it. They'd all seen what had happened. But the nationalists are also very clever and the Bolin, the head of the Francois propaganda and media, brings in journalists that are... 
um, favorable of the Francoist cause once the evidence has been planted and takes them around showing them the evidence seeing, see, look, this is evidence that the Basques set fire to their own town. And some of them, because they want to believe it, write up that version of events. Mary, Mary Minson, can we go back to the uh, the painting again, which uh, Gaius has given us a very good survey of? Can you talk about it more? Is the more that is the more that it gets painted? It's not liked immediately, but quite soon afterward. And you take it to history from then on. I, one of the very, very interesting things about the paper, which is magnificent, um, is of course because it is painted in black and black and white and all the shades in between. And of course, because Picasso is in Paris and has, as Guy says, been in Paris for a long time, because he hasn't seen the war, he hasn't had any direct experience of the war. Picasso's actual view or experience of the war is through newsprint, it's through photojournalism which is all over Spain. Spain's the first media war, and it's through reportage. And though the early sketches for the picture are in colour, when he eventually paints it, and he paints it directly onto the canvas, he works in black and white, and that is extraordinarily effective because you do get that sense of reportage, of newsreel, which is so, which is so intrinsic to the whole story of, of, of Guernica. You know, Guernica is both an atrocity and it's a news story, um, and Steer in particular um, is, is, is very keen to work with both the very widespread fear of war from the air, the fear of aerial bombardment is acute in the 1930s, it's a bit like the fear of nuclear war in the 1950s. People are really scared of this new technology Um, and also Steer is absolutely clear that one of his purposes is to show that there was Nazi involvement, is to show the danger of German German rearmament. Steer's reports, I would say one of the great great reporting... Anyway, it's it's a wonderful... I agree. Is there clear evidence that Picasso saw these pictures in the papers of of what had happened alongside Steer's writing? And did he take his black and white from that? He, yes, he he couldn't have avoided uh, the pictures. It it is perhaps they're worth saying that apart from the title, there is nothing that fits the picture directly to Guernica. Or or, or or Guernica, because of course Madrid has been bombed. I mean, both artillery bombardment and and and, and aerial bombardment. Barcelona will be bombed. Malaga will be bombed. So that even though um, we think of of of, of Guernica or Hispanists think of Durango as being the first bombing of civilians, it's not actually. It has happened before, but but, but this is this is what happens to a market town uh, rather than a, a major centre of population. Right. I mean, I think what's fascinating is we we always talk about it being black and white and grisaille and all the shades in between, and that's what grisaille is. But when it was first brought to Spain in 1981, the restorer, José María Cabrera, analysed the painting under the microscope, and Picasso had actually prepared it, going right back to medieval techniques, where you have a white lead ground, you then have a little bit of charcoal graphite mixed in with the neck, so it becomes like a mirror, and over that... Sorry, you're rushing me. Why does it become like a mirror? So, first of all... Sorry, sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to go slowly. Yep. Yep. Right, there you go. I'm, I'm not good at this, but here we go. So he paints this entire canvas white to start with. Absolutely. And does he sprinkle stuff on it? He mixes in with with uh, one of the lead white primers. He mixes in crushed glass. So it's white with crushed glass, so that gives it a strange texture. To, well, a wonderful te- I don't know, you tell me. Yeah, uh, not only a wonderful texture, what it does is it, it light comes into the picture and it bounces back out. So when we talk about the relationship between the painting and newsprint, it's also almost as if he's got a relationship between early television, the idea of light emanating out of a painting. 
painting, and it always has a very highly keyed up feeling to it. It's very powerful, it's very luminous, and that's not just because of that light bouncing out, but because there are very subtle colour changes. Every day it's got a very subtle little brown or a purple or... But then over the white, black comes in. And then over the white, the black comes in. Not everywhere, though. Not everywhere. And, in fact, what's fascinating is is that that painting that we see is actually a skin under which there are eight different variations which Picasso had worked on, which his lover, then Dora Maar, took photographs of. And there is one incredible day when, in fact, he thinks, am I going to try and add colour to this? It happens that Henry Moore is there in the studio, uh, Anthony Penrose is there in the studio as well, they're looking at the painting, and one of his friends, Bergamin, says to him, my goodness, Picasso, you're the man who invented cubism and collage, why don't you, instead of painting it, which is irreversible, just stick bits of wall, coloured wallpaper and see if it works? And of course, it didn't work. Uh, and thank goodness, in a sense, that that experiment, which was just for a few minutes and we have a photograph of it fails and we get the painting that we have today because it is actually through the black and white and this very highly luminous surface that we get the power and the magic and the aura and then they came, they came and because he had only seven weeks to do it they wanted it for the exhibition they came and said is it finished he said no but take it away if i finished it it'll be dead absolutely all finished paintings are dead paintings i like that um <laughs> Now then, Mary, no, Dacia, uh, who was supporting Franco? We have this propaganda exercise, um, which they must have thought was successful, did they? But who else in Spain was supporting? He was gathering strength after Guernica, wasn't he? Well, Guernica was quite a tricky thing for Franco to deal with and for the Francoist side to deal with because one of the big factions in the north that was supporting Franco were the Requetes, this northern legion which comes from the Carlist Wars, which were supporting him and for whom Guernica was also a very spiritual, symbolic, important place. So one of the reasons for that cover-up was to quell the anger of the Requetes for having destroyed Guernica. And in Spain, as you know, the Spanish Catholic Church very much was behind Franco throughout. But in the Basque country, the Basque Church split. So you had part of the Basque Church and its priests within the Basque Church supporting the Basque sort of nationalists. So these were Christian Democrats, in a sense, but also very much nationalists and behind the Basque cause. And then you had those that were supporting the Francoist and especially the Requetes and the church that was behind the Requetes. So you had this split of the Basque church, some against Franco, some for Franco, which then led to the execution of at least 16 Basque priests by the nationalists. But the heft of the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was behind Franco. Yes, absolutely, all the way. And the Pope continued to support Franco throughout the war and throughout the dictatorship. Mm. Um, Mary Vincent... Um, Governments around the world saw Steer's report. I keep coming back to yes. that report because it seems to have been so very important. And they saw what was going on. Then they saw Picasso's painting, which has been very vividly described by guys. They didn't intervene except surreptitiously, like the Germans and the Italians who went up the coast and again bombed a lot of undefended people. Um, why not? 
That's a very good question. Um, the the general response, the international response to the Spanish Civil War is what's called non-intervention, which begins as soon as August 1936. So before when you know, really when it's been clear that a military coup has failed, that, that there will be a civil war. And non-intervention, which is ostensibly to prevent other powers intervening in Spain at all, actually isn't that... It, 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 it simply isn't that. Non-intervention, which is proposed by the French and the British governments, actually turns into almost a policing mechanism, which does two things. It both ensures that nobody... Well, that, that, that there will be a limit to the amount of intervention that there is in Spain, because it has to be done in some sense surreptitiously. The Mussolini's intervention is really very, very substantial. And so is Goering's. And so was Goering. Well, Ger- the number of Germans... Um, that are in Spain is not particularly large, but what they are is extremely effective. Mm. Uh, whereas Mussolini sends hundreds of thousands of, of tro- uh, tens of thousands of troops. Um, but the other thing that non-intervention does is it also it doesn't just simply confine civil war to the, to the Iberian Peninsula. It confines revolution to the Spanish, uh, to, really to Spain, and that's the other purpose of non-intervention that it will it will limit aid to the republic but it will uh, to, to 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 both sides in the Spanish Civil War but it will skew it so that the republic is disadvantaged and the republic is disadvantaged from non-intervention from right from the very beginning and extraordinarily it is not even interrupted by Guernica and the non-intervention committee just doesn't discuss it it it, it does not even though there is the the, the outrage and even though there is the press report and even though there is confusion of denial and counter-denial, um, the non-intervention uh, committee simply ignores it. They just continue with the policy that's been established in August 1936. Guys, <coughs> Picasso's painting is... Uh, there's a bit, a bit of a bump down in Guernica, but it is rapturously received. Can you tell us the early history and then the late... Well, let's start up with the early history of the reception of the Guernica painting. Um, well, first of all, the, uh, some people, I mean, Le Corbusier would say uh, everybody had their backs to the painting. Uh, and in a sense, he's right, because we forget that it was in an open space underneath uh, a kind of plaza. Next to it was a Catalan restaurant. Opposite was a theatre, which was having plays on. In front of it was Alexander Calder's Mercury Fountain. There were people doing traditional dances all around in front of the painting. It was his kind of snub, but generally it was uh, incredibly well received. Uh, people found it a, a, a very powerful uh, a very puzzling, yes, certainly puzzling, uh, but they were shocked by it. Uh, I think you still see that today. Um, but what happens is, is straight after the exhibition, it's rolled up, it's sent back to Picasso's studio, and then there's a tour organised in '38 around Scandinavia. It comes back again to France, and then finally it takes a tour of, of Britain. Starts off in the Grosvenor Galleries, where it's supported by people like Ian Forster and, and other intellectuals, and then it goes from there uh, up to Manchester. To well, just a second, you missed a cut, because in the Grosvenor Gallery it didn't make much impact. It went to the East End and the Whitechapel Gallery, and, and hundreds and hundreds of <coughs> thousands of people went, which says a lot for the distinction between Mayfair and Whitechapel, really. Uh, absolutely. But, but it, had, it had briefly gone up to Manchester, where it had been shown in a car showroom yeah. and had been unrolled and they couldn't even stretch it so the students nailed it up to the wall. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> amazing to think now. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Marvin. It's, it's, it's the, the 
sympathy that it gets in the in the in the Whitechapel in the East End that would of course suffer under the Blitz later on. Uh, That's the point. Yeah, absolutely. And equally, of course, uh, the one photo which I would love to have found but never have found is that working men brought their working men's boots to put under the painting, almost like ex votos, to send to the troops in Spain. But of course, by then it was already 1939. It was too late. Barcelona was to fall in just a few weeks after that. And it began to accrete a reputation which just seems to grow and grow. We come, might have time to come back to that, but you've given us enough. Thank you very much indeed. Now then, Mary, um, how did it... Um, now let's go back to Guernica with you, Darcy. What happens in Guernica after this? So it's... it's what do they, how do they pull themselves together? Well, how do they try to pull themselves together? Guernica, as I mentioned, was then invaded by the nationalist forces three days later. And one of the interesting things with Guernica is that as the, even as the war is going on in 1938, the Francoist government in, in Burgos sets up this thing called Regiones Devastadas, Devastated Regions, which is their main organism for the reconstruction of Spain. And they're already planning it, already starting to rebuild in the nationalist side while the war is going on. Then the, once the war ends, this idea of devastated regions, which takes over the reconstruction of the entire country, and Guernica beca- becomes an adopted town within this reconstruction. So there's a series of adopted towns. Those that were damaged by more than 75% of damage to the towns become adopted, and Guernica is one of them. And in all of the publicity, propaganda, magazines, exhibitions of Regiones Devastadas, Guernica is one of the kind of jewels of the crown of the reconstruction of Spain. They don't reconstruct it. They build a different town. They build a sort of Spanish escorial, Philip II, grim, glum, authoritarian town. Well, all the focus. So they have this very ambitious ideal of reconstructing the entire of Spain in the image of the escorial, of this glorious moment in Spanish architecture and history when it mm. was imperial power. But the only way they managed to really do that is in the town halls. So the main square of Guernica, its town hall, is built in this escurraliense style with round balls and pinnacles and granite and forged iron. To make the link again, on the pe- <coughs> at what stage do the people of Guernica adopt uh, the painting and say, yes, this is us? So as you suggested earlier, the first reaction is partly to reject it. And there's this fantastic photograph of the Basque government in exile standing in front of the painting in the pavilion in Paris, where Picasso, as it's being taken down, says to the Basque government, this is yours. If you want the painting, it's yours. And the Basque government in exile says, no, thank you. And that has been one of the thorns in the side of the Basques wanting to claim (laughs) Guernica for the Basque country. But little by little within the Basque country, Guernica becomes adopted, becomes a symbol of the suffering of the Basque country during the Franco period, where owning a reproduction like the postcard that you have in front of you of Guernica is illegal. You can get thrown in jail for having a postcard. You can get thrown in jail for sending a postcard of the painting. So it really becomes this kind of flag of the resistance against Franco. So that symbolism of it continues to grow. And as it does its tour of the world, as it becomes a kind of flag also for gaining um, support for the Republic and then ends up in MoMA, of course, it just gains all of this uh, international symbolism, which then when it returns to Guernica, the Guernicans are very proud of. And if I can leap forward to 
in the early 2000s when, if you remember Colin Powell standing in front of the Security Council office where there is a reproduction of Guernica, a tapestry reproduction of Guernica, which was ordered by Rockefeller to sit, to be there, to hang there, to remind those going into the Security Council that they're there to prevent war. Colin Powell announces the invasion of Iraq in front of the Security Council where they have covered up the tapestry. And the people of Guernica, and in particular the survivors of the bombing, write a letter of protest to the United Nations saying, that tapestry, that reproduction of Guernica, of what we suffered is there to remind you not to go to war. How dare you cover it up when you're announcing that you're going to war? Briefly, Mary, the, can we conclude? Can you conclude the civil war for us quite briefly? I can. Yes, I can. I can do my best. So, the um, the, the the bombings of Durango and, and, and Guernica are the are, are the prelude, really the immediate prelude to the fall of the North. So, at the at the time when the bombings take place, the Francoist troops are marching on the Atlantic seaboard of northern Spain, which is republican. Um, the Basque Country, Santander, and 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 the, the the mining region of Asturias. The rest of Republican territory is all in the south and eastern centre. So the Republic at this point has been, has been divided. The after the bombing of Guernica, it's only a matter of weeks really before the North falls, um, and at that point. The, the nationalists are in, are in command for the first time of just over half of the of, 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 of national territory. Most significantly, they have finally got a major industrial area. Spain's not heavily industrialised, but such heavy industry as there is is along that northern seaboard. It, it's, and there are also made the major Atlantic points uh, ports. So this is a very significant um, territorial gain for the Francoists, and it gives them it, it gives them clearly the advantage. From that point, the war against the Republic becomes a war of attrition. Um, so it's what Paul Preston's called defeat by instalments. Um, the, the nationalist armies can now turn their attention to Madrid and Barcelona, the two great centres of population. Um, they they will um, uh, they will reach the sea um, in January 1938. So the Republic will be divided into two. Barcelona falls in January 38. Madrid falls... Um, after a, a, a political turmoil behind the Republican lines in on the 1st of April 1939 and falls without a shot being fired. Guys, can you give us a final summary as we're near the end of the programme of the status of that painting in world art as it were now? Um, I, I certainly think it's the greatest painting of the 20th century, certainly the most powerful image. Um, I can do it in two ways. First of all, you stand in front of it and you see children coming in still today from Spanish school children, four, five-year-olds, and they are struck silent by the image. That's one way of looking at it. The other way is, is seeing that pretty well every single war today, still one of the parties will try to access and use that painting as propaganda in their favour. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Geisman Hansbergen. Thank you, Mary Vincent, and thank you, Desia. Next week, we'll be discussing the Picts. And to mark our 20th season, we'll be doing that in front of a studio audience at the University of Glasgow. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I am coming back. (laughs) What did he miss out? What did he not say that he'd wished he had a chance to say? 
I, I mean, I, I think there is stuff that's worth saying about the Basques. Um, one of the reasons that the picture gains such attention is that there is real sympathy for the Basques outside Spain. For, the, for Republican Spain in general, the fact of the revolution, which is violent um, and which has resulted in a lot of destruction and, and many, many murders, um, has made support for the for for the republic quite difficult for certain sectors i mean most most famously um for for, for european catholics um but the basques don't have any of that baggage the basques it's the only part of the republic where there has not been forced collectivizations there has not been anti-clerical violence um there is an, in, an awful lot of sympathy for the Basque, hence the evacuation of the basque children um, um uh, to, to, to belgium to britain to france i mean they, they, so there is a lot of humanitarian support for the Basque, and then you get guernica I mean, the the thing that I would love to talk more about is the is Picasso's absolute genius in creating an image in seven weeks, and in a sense conflating the entire history of art from Roman sarcophagi, Greek crater vases, uh, illuminated manuscripts from the ninth century, Rubens, uh, Goya, and turning it into his own language and, and absorbing the history of art and creating what is actually quite miraculous in seven weeks. Uh, I mean, any artist would be very happy to have, to have filled a canvas, let alone make a canvas which actually did what it was asked to do, which is scream out to the world and highlight what Republican Spain was suffering. And that was what it was supposed to do, and that's what it did magnificently uh, and, and with immense power. And there was a nationalist exhibition in the Vatican Pavilion, is that right? Yeah, that's exactly, something. just behind it, where, where Sert, uh, the uncle of the architect, uh, had done the bombing of uh, the Toledo, uh, the Alcazar, as an image, which, of course, for the, for the nationalists was their Guernica. So we had the kind of face-off between these two pavilions, all in the shadow, of course, of the great two pavilions of Nazi Germany and the Soviet pavilion uh, staring down uh, across Paris. Dathya, how's the bombing marked now in Guernica? The bombing has been marked ever since the bombing occurred, first by the Basque government exile, and then once Franco dies, it begins to be marked inside the town more officially. And every time sort of the, the painting is plays a part often in those commemorations in terms of the Peace Museum in Guernica, the Cultura Chea, the House of Culture in Guernica, organizing all kinds of events around exhibitions of reproductions of the painting or having children do their version of the mural. Um, but in, now the, the commemoration in Guernica it has lots of different kind of interest groups and communities of memory that come into it. But the one that joins everybody up is at 4.30, the church bells ring, and that is what launches a service that is held in the cemetery where there's now a mausoleum that contains the mortal remains of those that were killed in the bombing. So that's the main thing that brings everyone together. And then in the, in the square around the ayuntamiento, the town hall, the different groups, the survivors groups, organize things. The ayuntamiento, the town hall, organizes things. And then, I mean, as you know, the Basque politics is quite fraught and quite divided. So depending on who's in the town hall, whether it's the PNV or the Abertales, different kinds of ways of interpreting and talking about the commemoration, about Guernica, about what happened, evolved. The, the most important thing, perhaps, was when the, the German president wrote a letter that was read by the German ambassador to Spain in which he acknowledged German involvement in the bombing of Guernica. And that was hugely important. And it's talked about in Guernica as the apology. 
it wasn't an, an apology per se, but it was an an recognition of German involvement in the bombing, which was the first time that Germany officially recognized that they had taken part in it. And so now that's remembered. And if you speak to people in Guernica, they'll say, Germany apologized and Madrid still hasn't apologized. So there's this kind of tension there around that. One of the things I was interested in was how the painting was returned to Spain eventually. What were the circumstances there? Um, well, it, it's it's still I, I, until the ex king Juan Carlos either publishes his diaries. I think he was I think he was involved actually uh, in the kind of behind the scenes because if you remember in February twenty third, nineteen eighty one, we had the coup attempt, and it was literally the day before that Picasso's lawyer signed over the fact that the painting could move from uh, from America and come to Spain. And the moral rights, as it were, of the family also signed off that this could happen. But then the coup attempt happened. And it could have gone two ways. They could have said, well, you know, Picasso always says it has to come back to a republican democracy. And what has shown is that it's very fragile. I think a lot of pressure was put on to the Museum of Modern Art and onto the Senate to pass uh, at Congress uh, level or whatever to pass the fact that it could go, and secretly it comes back in November '81, and, and to open in front of behind bulletproof, bombproof glass, uh, and allowed in is La Passionaria, and uh, she turns around to people standing there and says, "I think the or, the Spanish Civil War has ended." Uh, it's seen as the last exile. And one other thing with in Guernica, and that also relates to how the Guernicans then come to have this special relationship with the painting, is there is a group of people from Guernica that take the bus from Guernica all the way down to Madrid to go and see this painting at the Casón del Buen Retiro, and that they told me how they stood on line outside, there are long lines going all around the Casón, and they finally go in to see it, and of course as they're going in, there is bulletproof glass, there is this armed civil guard, they have to show their national ID cards. And on the national ID cards, Spanish national ID cards, it says where you're from. And so, of course, on their cards, there's Guernica. And so they're showing this military, armed military guard standing at the door going, look, look, we're from Guernica, we're from Guernica. So that kind of pride of relating to the painting and coming to own the painting very much comes when Guernica arrives in Spain for the first time. It's interesting, I think, both because obviously when it goes back to, to Spain, it's displayed on its own, in its own house at the, the, the Prado, the, the, the Casson. And then, of course, it's only significantly later that it's, in, that it's incorporated into the Reina Sofia Museum and takes its place within Spanish modern art. It's kind of reincorporated into the canon of, of, of Spanish art. Not, it's no longer something completely singular. Um, but at the same time, if outside Spain, um, it escapes those moorings altogether. So Guernica has this extraordinary afterlife in British popular music culture um, with all these songs. I mean, the, from the clashes of Spanish bombs to the Manic Street Peaches, if, if you tolerate this, you know, that the bombing of Guernica, twinned with Coventry, becomes some a, a symbol for, for the horrors of war that has really completely escaped its, its Spanish well, origins. Coventry was in the back of my mind. It was as Guernica was a sort of dry run. Well, not a dry run. What am I going to say? Rehearsal yeah. uh, yes. for Coventry. The same carpet bombing, yes. the same... No opposition after a while when they run out of ammunition in commentary, as you know. The same, just raising it backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Yes. I mean, intolerable. Uh, what happened? You, you mentioned um, his... Was it his wife or his mistress at the time? Dora Ma, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, whatever she was. She lived with them. Yeah. But she took masses of photographs. Yeah, which, uh, which most of them, the, the actual, the, on her death, I think it was about five years ago, the Reina Sophia actually bought the series of photographs, which are now permanently on display in the in the museum quite close to the picture so you can actually work out those different stages that's great um uh, and it's it is dramatic how, how it does change and and you can see him thinking through and there's that wonderful quote of picasso's where he says uh, i wish i could uh, show you how a painting's the, ge- the genesis and the evolution of a painting how it doesn't actually change from the first idea to the last but the, still the character is always there. And, in fact, that first sketch, which he does on May the 1st, is, is enough of Guernica, the end painting, and you see that he's painting towards it and then away from it and back to that original idea that he's already got of, of the horse and the bull. And he, he, I think he did, did do 67 different studies. Where are they? Uh, they're owned by the Reina Sophia as well, and many of them are, are, are actually loaned out. And, of course, drawings you can only show for like a, 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 you know, a month at a time because they're drawings. Uh, so they circulate those, and so there's only ever five or six drawings on display. But occasionally they actually have lent them to, to Guernica, to, to some of the earlier sketches. And for people like Jackson Pollock, actually, they felt that, the, that some of those paintings were actually the, better than the painting itself. Uh, the Weeping Woman, for instance, which is a kind of series which he carries on. That's Dora Maar, and he carries on doing her for about a year after he's finished the painting itself. I love the Jackson Pollock story about him looking after Guernica in America in the room and <laughs> telling people he, he got himself a job, didn't he? Yeah, caretaker absolutely. in whatever curator in that caretaker in that room. And if anybody came in when he was really studying it, told them to get out or he'd take them out and give them something in the street. Yeah, Is that true? Yeah, yeah apparently. I mean, Great. if they if they criticised the painting, I mean, he felt that it, it was kind of it was almost his, and actually he did lots of versions. Uh, of kind of mini kind of Jackson Pollock twists on on the kind of contorted animals in the painting. There's that fantastic anecdote, which maybe guess you can say whether it's accurate or not, of Picasso being in his Grand Augustin studio and being there with Guernica and German soldiers coming into his studio, seeing the painting and asking Picasso, did you do this? And Picasso saying, no, you did. (laughs) (laughs) Is yeah. it true or is it? Uh, we will never know. We will never know. <laughs> but, you know, in Guernica itself, they've renamed all these streets. So there's a mural reproduction of Guernica, of the painting in Guernica, in the town, which was done in, in ceramic tiles. So on a street in the town of Guernica, you look up and you see the, the painting. Mm-hmm. And also one of the things they've done, as well as all of the different reproductions of it, is that sense of just having it everywhere and renaming. They've renamed the main um, one of the main squares which was at Ferial, which received most of um, the biggest charge of bombing, they, which was called Fernando el Católico, Ferdinand the Catholic of the Catholic Kings. They've renamed it Pablo Picasso Square. So Picasso has very much been owned by Guernica, yeah. and you have a bar called the Guernica where the napkins have little reproductions of Picasso's <laughs> paintings. So it's really all over the place in Guernica. Your coffee? Well, keep it going, because I want to tell the, the, the listeners who will be puzzled that the man who took over ground control was Sam Wilson, <laughs> the producer, and multitasking to a fault is now offering us coffee or tea, <laughs> after which you get ready for... <laughs> 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 that would be lovely. Uh, coffee, please.
I'm Simon Mundy, host of Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions, covering topics like resilience, tribalism and fear with people like this. We keep talking about fear and to me I always want to bring it back to are you actually in danger? That's Alex Honnold, star of the Oscar-winning film Free Solo, in which he climbed a 3,000-foot sheer cliff without ropes. So, I mean, a lot of those, you know, social anxieties things, and certainly I've had a lot of issues with talking to attractive people in my life. I'm like, oh no, like I could never do that. And it certainly feels like you're going to die, but realistically you're not going to die. And that's all practice too. Have a listen to Don't Tell Me The Score, full of useful everyday tips from incredible people on BBC Sounds.